You know, typically we don't do true crime on the peripheral. And I don't know if people would consider this episode an exception or not. Uh, I really am more fascinated with the process of things and how society deals with and responds to crime and victims and survivors. What's rarely talked about is what happens after the fact. What happens after the crime? Who has to deal with murder weapons? Who has to deal with the cleanup? These are elements that we never think about. It's just a foregone conclusion that these things are dealt with. So I've spoken with two people that that's their job, is to handle things after a a crime or a, a violent incident has happened. My first guest works at a gun shop, and she explains what happens to weapons that are seized. And my second guest is a crime scene cleanup professional. Also, some of my interviews have some noises going on, some buzzing sounds, and it's because Skype has eaten a few of them. I apologize. These two interviews, I've edited out a lot of the buzzing sound. Sadly, it's taken out some of the content too, but I think the points get across. Both the stories are interesting either way. My name's Corey. I work for a gun shop and we also own a auction site. 90% of what's on the auction site is from our company. It's stuff we list through different accounts, but you can list stuff as a private seller as well. So it's not just all of us. The biggest portion of my job is we work with different police agencies all over the United States. Not all of them, but quite a few of them. So not just local, but uh, everywhere. Yeah. The weird thing is, is we actually don't do anything local, like (laughs) nothing within our state. It's weird, but it's mostly out of state. Like we don't have anything as far as local. The closest thing we probably deal with is like Georgia, something like that. But yeah, nothing local. So they'll, they'll send us all their seized firearms, everything that they have locked up in evidence closets. So, and it's, it's not just firearms that we receive. Like we'll get ammo, magazines, like any, like I told you, I basically clean closets for a living. So So you're getting weapons that are seized from say people that are arrested and had a gun on them or even weapons that are seized during a a raid or even weapons that were used in in a suicide. Right. Yeah. A good bulk of them will come from raids that they do. So they will get, of course, like tons of them in, which is where our bulk of it comes from is raid seizures. So we'll get, we'll get tons of them through that. We get anything from assaults just for somebody having a stolen firearm that they shouldn't have, getting arrested with drugs, anything like that. And like you said, we get suicide guns as well. And what are you expected to do with these weapons when they're brought to you? So when they're brought to us, we'll send them uh, shipping materials and stuff like that. So All they'll basically do is they'll tag them with like a number that we can just identify it by. It makes it easier for us to log them in and stuff. But they'll bring them to us. And the first thing that we have to do is we have to clear them. First, you clear the ammo from the the weapon. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Make sure it's safe to be around everybody Mm -hmm. you'd think coming from a police agency you that's the first thing they do when they get it but (laughs) that's not always the case there's been plenty of times where 
I've, you know, opened a shotgun or something like that and got pegged in the forehead with like a shotgun shell or something because they're loaded. So that's the first thing that we have to do. Because I watch a lot of videos and stuff on YouTube and I follow different gun channels, I, I see that there's like the top five things you don't do at a gun store and, and like guys will come in with their gun to a gun store and they'll, you know, be told, hey, you have to leave your gun at the counter. The person at the counter will say, you know, is it clear? And the person will say, oh, yeah, it's not chambered. And then every time they'll like rack the slide and like a, a shell will eject or something. And it's like. Just... Yeah. So basically nobody's trustworthy yeah. in that aspect, not even the police. Yeah. That's the firearms. Now, are, are these tagged? Do you know if they're from a murder or anything? Some agencies, they'll leave their case numbers, stuff like that on them. A lot of them come in evidence boxes and there'll be descriptions of what they were seized for. So most of it's assault or drug related Mm -hmm. um, and some of it's like property forfeiture and stuff like that. So not all of them have that, but some of them do. Mm -hmm. It honestly depends on the agency and sometimes they'll remove it and sometimes they won't. Some of these weapons you're expected to destroy, right? Right. And and Mm -hmm. how how do you go about destroying a weapon? (laughs) Basically, what we would destroy them for is if it has like a defaced serial number, like if it's been scratched off or removed, obviously we can't sell those. We break them apart, like to where obviously they're not operable. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to send uh, that agency proof that we've done that and then they're melted down. Oh, okay. Just because we're we're all true true crime fans here, <laughs> the ballistics of a bullet can be traced back mm-hmm. to the barrel of a weapon, uh, the rif- right. the rifling, and I, I just wonder if they keep documentation of that before they destroy these weapons because I would just assume if a criminal has this gun, it could have gone passed around a few hands and been used in a murder. So I, I like when you told me you destroy weapons, I was like, well, what if they were, you know, why don't they keep them around? So did they do any documentation like that before they bring them to you? We don't re- receive too much. That's for like violent crimes and stuff like that. At least that's diclo- disclosed to us. Cause like I said, we don't know what its story is as far as when it comes to us. Yeah. But yeah, they, they've got all that documented. Um, I think I, had to actually get some of the guns back that we've sold because something comes up, a lawyer gets involved, needs the gun back for certain cases, stuff like that. It's rare, but it's happened before. So you get a gun that you can either destroy or, or more or less resell. So you clean it up and you resell it. And then a lawyer gets involved and you have to go back to that gun owner and do you have to buy it back or just do they have to loan it back to you for a while or we'll buy it back from them just to Mm -hmm. just to get it out of the way like i said that's that's really like it's an accidental situation that should never happen but Mm -hmm. it it does happen so well i mean you're you're doing what you're told you're you're following your rules and policies so you wouldn't know (laughs) exactly right some of these weapons have been used in, say, a suicide, and I know that it's it's a brutal scene if somebody puts a shotgun or a deer hunting rifle in their mouth. So do they clean these weapons off before they come to you? Nope. They're, they're put in whatever we give them. If it's a, like a postal service bag, whatever we give them, they stick it in there and they send it to us. But it's marked biohazard, so we at least... <laughs> have a little bit of an idea of what's going to be inside. Wow. You kind of know probably what some of these guns were used because of their condition that you received them in. 
Right. So it'll be marked biohazard for whatever reason, but the main one is it'll be noted suicide. So, mm-hmm. and you just clean those guns up and put them put them on the auction, right? Yep. Just <laughs> clean them up and sell them. That's basically what we do. Like I said, it feels kind of morbid, but I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> I'm not a superstitious guy at all myself, so it wouldn't really bother me. But I wondered, like, do you you don't have to disclose to the buyers anything about this gun, do you? Oh, no, definitely not. Sure, we would receive some flack for that. But like even me handling them, it just it's just like an eerie feeling. Mm-hmm. I, that just is, I mean, again, it doesn't bother me so much. Uh, I mean, I, I had gone with my friend to uh, a murder scene. And at the time, I was, you know, a young kid, bachelor living by myself. And I needed a kitchen table. And I literally took the table from this crime scene where this guy's... Uh, brain matter had been splattered all over it and i i took it home i took it home and cleaned it up i used some bleach wipes and i didn't care i mean i'm just like i needed a table and hey he needed help cleaning everything out of this apartment you know or this you know home and i was like i'll take the table i'll take whatever you you know and so i did so again i'm not that concerned about the history of uh an an inanimate object myself (laughs) right of course, it's disclosed to them that these come from a police department and that they're seized firearms. And a lot of people will ask, it's like the most annoying question, but it's, what is this gun's story? Like, <laughs> what, why was it seized? And I'm like, we, you know, we list so many a day. I have literally no yeah. idea what it was seized for. Like, I can't tell you. <laughs> Unless it has some stupid engraving on the handle, you probably can't really make an assumption. <laughs> yeah. The outlaw, like maybe he was an outlaw and he had to, you know, they had to take it. <laughs> so do you, do you get a lot of uh, blinged out guns or are they just all over the place we get the most ridiculous stuff i have ever seen like some el chapo looking crap we got this colt it had um it was gold on the like the grip of it Mm -hmm. and there was a scorpion engraved in it and it was the most tragic thing i've ever seen because you could tell somebody did it with like a kitchen knife or something but you could kind of tell what it was i mean we just get like people will spend the most money putting crap on it's unbelievable. <laughs> like high points is the big one. Oh yeah. That will have different skins on them and <laughs> Well, and those are the cheapest weapons out there, you know. Yeah. And so I uh, obviously criminals don't really want to spend the extra cash on a weapon because well, it's <laughs> probably not going to have it and you know, their their life uh right. lifespan is pretty short. <laughs> right, definitely. Uh, that's just it's it's weird just because I never knew most people don't think about like, okay, after a crime is committed, what happens to these weapons? Well, we all know that the police will seize weapons, but then we just assume that they're stored in this, you know, locker, this evidence room forever. And they're not. (laughs) No, it varies by state, but a lot of departments, as far as it doesn't even have to be guns. I mean, as far as property, they're required to do it in a public auction or, destroy it after you know a period of time so it it's nice to at least know that once they're being sold it's, i mean it's going back to the agency so mm-hmm. yeah. you know for whatever they need mm-hmm. that's crazy and and you get hundreds a week or Ooh, well right now it's it's picked up a lot it it honestly varies we're getting anywhere from 2 to 3000 a month so it's Jeez. <laughs> yeah it's 
it's it's rough, but we get through them fairly quickly. That's incredible. Thousands a month. I mean, that just shows how many guns are in circulation, legal or illegal, that are out. It blows there. my mind. Like, and I've been doing this for two or three years now, and it's still like every time we get them in, I just cannot wrap my head around how they're taking this many guns off the street. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you they're they're by the pallet loads. So. <laughs> oh yeah, pallet yeah, tons and tons. Like, well, whenever they request shipping materials, they're like, we need pallet pickup. It's gonna be a lot. What are some of the other things maybe that you think the public doesn't know about as far as gun disposal or gun sales? The big thing with how people feel about guns being auctioned off, uh, seized by the police, is that we're just putting guns back out on the street, you know, back into the hands of criminals, which the the work that I do, it's it's of course, it's extremely legitimate. There's a process to buying a firearm. Of course, you don't just go online and say, hey, send this to me, and it goes to your house. There's a whole process involved of FFL dealers and background checks and transferring in your name. Like, it's not just putting it back into the hands of criminals. Like, time has shown, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. So, So, it just is what it is. Legit, you're only uh, FFL dealers and firearms dealers they have to do background checks. They have to run checks. And if somebody's buying, like if I were to buy from you and I live in another state, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, you have to actually ship it to a middleman, right? Like I can't, right. you can't even ship it directly to me. You have to ship it to gun license dealer here. And then there's like a whole paperwork exchange and I have to go there and I have, I literally pay like 50 bucks or something to do the, the exchange. It's got to it's got to go to a dealer in your area. It's just a, as far as like a license exchange between us two. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we validate them, we can send it. And then it's, you know, it's in their hands as far as you know, running the background check on you and all that. Yeah. And how do you feel about the background checks? Like, do you feel that they usually are pretty thorough and and do prevent people from, you know, the wrong people from buying them? <laughs> it's, I'm very like... Um, back and forth as far as my opinion on that. I'm sure that there could be more questions and more screening that could be done to, you know, but it's like I said before, criminals are criminals because they don't follow the law. Obviously if I'm a felon and I need a gun, I'm not going to buy it online and go to a dealer and get, (laughs) you know, get it to me through that way. I'm going to obviously go through a different means of getting it. Yeah. You're going to steal it. You're going to find somebody that's selling filed off serial number guns, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. So guns haven't changed. It's, it's the people that have changed. So, yeah. And I I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I mean, I don't know. It's fine. It's just, it's a, it's a very touchy subject (laughs) as far as talking about it. I have a lot of friends that are, gun connoisseurs and uh mm-hmm. one of them he is not allowed to purchase weapons anymore <laughs> and i think with good reason uh mean- mm-hmm. meanwhile i have other friends that can buy them all day long that me personally might be like i don't know if they should be buying a gun but again they don't have a criminal record but there's nothing to say that they can't get one you know, it sucks that we can't even just talk openly, you know, about that because people get so triggered. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's like a, it's super, super touchy. Like um, mm-hmm. and um, when the Vegas shooting happened, uh, there was a lot of talk on regulations of bump stocks and stuff like that. Yeah. And 
to be honest, it's kind of a useless accessory. Like, I mean, it's not like a huge deal, like to regulate it. And the NRA had backed it and supported it. And, you know, they put, you know, we support the NRA and their decision. I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. There's tons of backlash for it. Like people are just super, super touchy or either there's people that are super, super, you know, gun rights and all mm. about this and they can't be swayed or anything like that. They're convinced the government is coming for their guns. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then there's the people that are so against it. They see no reason for it at all. Like mm. they don't see a reason for them to even exist. Yeah. And I look at something like the bump stock and the bump stock. Okay. So if you ban the bump stock, that's fine. But there's probably what 20 other enhanced trigger systems out there that allow people right. to fire weapons at an inhuman rate. <laughs> and, right. and and so it's, I'm, I'm torn on that too myself because I feel, well, sure, this should be banned because really to me, it's, uh, it's circumventing the manufacturer's intention of the weapon. And, mm-hmm. and if we are truly okay, semi-auto is semi-auto and everything else, you know, is, is illegal. Well, it's, it's like, modifying your car and you know we have people that put nitro and all this stuff on their car and it's like well all of a sudden this is this should not be a street legal car anymore <laughs> it's, right. it's it's a race car now and and i feel there's a little bit of hypocrisy with well don't ban the bump stocks and i'm like well you're finding the loophole in the fully automatic uh ban here and yeah and it's to me i'm like no that's you're you're literally showing that you can fire a weapon faster than a human can and then yeah. and then standing behind well it's still a semi-auto and i'm like but <laughs> that's not the yeah, point it's like the way i felt about it when it all happened people are throwing tantrums over it mm-hmm. like people that don't even use it it's just the thought of them having something taken from them yeah as whatever their right is and the way i see it is if you give them that let them regulate it mm-hmm. that's a win you know, that's a win for them. They feel as if they have, you know, done something to regulate guns yeah. and maybe they back off a little. Yeah. <laughs> it's not such a big deal for right now. And if they actually, I don't know, enforced a lot of the gun laws, uh, it would actually curtail some of the outrage out there. And that's the problem. And, and with bump stocks or any enhanced firing systems, I mean, uh, what's the other one? It's like the, the Gen 3, which literally you pull the trigger and that's one bullet, and then you release the trigger, and that's another bullet. And I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> See, it's going over a very thin line. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm just in the, you know, I'm in the middle. Like, I enjoy doing it for sport, you know, to have yeah. fun. I have them to defend my home if, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's just me and my daughter here. So, yeah, it's to defend, you know, to defend ourselves. And I really don't need it, you know, need anything aside from that. I hunt and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm just a normal person like yeah. i don't need anything extra uh but yeah i'm gonna i probably leave this whole gun debate thing off the end uh <laughs> oh yeah that's probably gonna be best as far as for your sake like i don't care if people like lash out on me because they don't even know me but yeah. you <laughs> just i yeah i can't be uh i can't be very open anymore it's so sad yeah it's this whole uh self self uh editing kind of thing but okay thank you awesome have a good one you too bye Thank you so much for sharing your story. And my next guest is somebody that some of you might know. A podcast called The Cleaning of John Doe. 
It's currently on a indefinite hiatus. I know that she works a full-time job with her husband. They are very, very busy. And podcasting is a full-time job itself. So let's get to the interview. My name is Vanessa Pearson, and I'm the host of a podcast called The Cleaning of John Doe. The Cleaning of John Doe is quite a title. Uh, I think it's self-explanatory, but go ahead and explain what your podcast is about and what your job is. Okay, sure. So The Cleaning of John Doe is, um, it's basically a podcast about us. My husband and I own a crime scene cleaning company in California, and so the podcast kind of journeys along with us and our experience cleaning up after um, traumatic accidents, death, hoarding, suicides, and um, things of that nature. How does one get into crime scene cleanup? How, why was this like the perfect fit for you? Oh, I think that is a long loaded question. I <laughs> um, didn't mean it to be loaded. <laughs> <laughs> the short, um, the short answer, and we did, we did take it up in one of our episodes, but the short answer is I was working for a cleaning, a janitorial company and um, the owner had passed away and the new manager was um, very unpleasant to work with. So I had a, over an hour drive home, and we, her and I had a rough day. And so I was kind of in my head about everything and upset and thinking of how I could quit and then basically plotting that I would just start my own janitorial business and take all of their clients. And that's not my style at all. So, you know, realize, okay, I'm not going to steal their clients. I'm not that type of person. And then in front of me, a car hit a dog and took off. And so I stopped to get out to make sure the dog was okay. And unfortunately, the dog died. And so I got to thinking, it's like, oh, you know, I could I could clean up roadkill, basically. And then I quickly realized that the Humane Society or Animal Control probably has somebody to do that. But that sparked the question of who cleans up when people die. And... I actually got kind of excited thinking, um, you know, I, I don't even know if that's a thing. Do people clean up after people die or people, do people die messy? I mean, so I got kind of excited about this. And then on my whole drive home, I talked myself down as like, no, the police do it and the coroners do it. And, or if they don't, then you have to do all this special training that you have to be a young spring chicken to do. And, You have to work, you know, you have all these degrees and you have to work for law enforcement and they don't hire after you're a certain age. So by the time I got home, I had gone like the full gamut of emotions on it. It's like super excited, like I'm going to do this. And then totally down in the dumps, like, no, I can't. But I decided to look it up anyway. And much to my surprise, it is I learned that it's left to the family members, which is terrible. So... I started researching, you know, how to do it, and I found a hands-on training facility in Texas, and so I think within a week I had booked my flight and bought his course and flew out there, and and away it went. And you kind of figured out that cleaning up these things didn't exactly bother you the way it would bother most people. Right. Now, I had mentioned, which not here, but in, in one of my episodes, when I was younger, I saw um, I saw a man jump from the 
I forget what floor it was, but I think it was like 14 or 17 stories off of a, a hotel. Mm-hmm. And so I was across the street pushing the crosswalk button, and I happened to look up to see if the light was changing, and then there goes this body. By the time I got across the street, sirens were coming, and yeah, it was kind of, when I saw it, I wasn't as um, traumatized as you would think somebody would be. I don't know, maybe I was just in complete shock, but throughout my life, it's never really traumatized me, but it was more, I don't know, I got really interested after that in crime scene photos, Mm -hmm. just because of how amazingly bright the blood was, and I don't know, in my head, you kind of imagine humongous puddles or... I, not that I've imagined people jumping off of buildings, but, you know, it's, it, the real life is very different from something you can imagine in your head. So yeah. that happened early, and I don't know. I don't know if I'm just a strange person, but it just did not, for whatever reason, get to me. Well, uh, I, this is a weird superpower of mine. Uh, I have no fear <laughs> of fire. And oh, wow. Why I'm not a fireman, I don't know, or <laughs> a fireman. Um, but I, I, like, 4th of July, when things are on fire, whatever, I have zero fear. Whereas other people are flinching, jumping back, or you know, whatever. I, I don't have that. I guess I missed my calling, but you haven't missed yours. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're podcasting, which is awesome. Yes. <laughs> this has to be cleaned up this has to be dealt with and somebody's got to do it <laughs> you're right and you made me feel less like really strange um <laughs> so i actually really appreciate that because i've it's kind of bothered me of why it's never bothered me you know it's like i, I should be this would freak people out i should be bothered by this but mm-hmm. it, i just for whatever reason didn't get to me the way you think it would yeah well and- now other things get to me like anything eyeball related if you try to point something at my eyeball, forget it. It's, you know what? That's not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, I, uh, like I, I, I was talking earlier, but uh, a friend of mine, his, his mother was dating a guy who they were on drugs and the guy's father ended up killing him at, oh at the kitchen table, shooting him in the head. And he also had a uh, woman that he had murdered in his tool shed. And he had this huh. weird, weird thing in his head that he was going to kidnap my friend's mother, you know, kill, kill his son, his, her boyfriend, and then make oh, it yeah. look like it was, she was dead too because of this other woman he killed. And um, it was uh, Christmas Eve, my friend said, hey, I need your help to come collect some of my mother's things. So I had to go to that crime scene. And uh, I was somewhat excited to go see a crime scene. But then once I got there, I I was like, "Uh, yeah, this probably isn't for me. (laughs) But here's the thing is they were heavy smokers. Right. And the smell of cigarettes and just the smell of the, the gross living conditions freaked me out more than the blood and the guts. Yeah, we encounter gross living conditions often, too. And sometimes it's, you know, it'll overpower the the smell of what a crime scene would smell like if it were in a clean area. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, it didn't bother me all that much. I guess it was just the overall 
uh, event bothered me, but you've, I'm sure, walked into way worse scenes than I have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I can't imagine the smells there. So is there, I, I guess I don't know what the smell of death quite is yet, because I, I haven't really experienced it, because I just saw blood. I didn't see a body or anything. Right. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they vary. Um, so I'm more sensitive to kind of a fresh suicide. It's got a really metallic, um, it's got a really like copper metallic scent. Um, so, but then you have like decomposition and those mostly smell the same. However, we've kind of learned through this whole process that unhealthy people smell, uh, they smell different. Um, I don't know if you could say it's worse. We we were doing an, we were going to do an episode on like the worst smelling one we did, but I felt it was a little bit insensitive, so we kind of put the brakes on it mm. without being rude or insulting. Um, that particular cleanup that we did, um, the guy was very heavy, and so Ethan researched out why it would smell different, but it had more of a sour smell than it did. It, it still smelled like a decomp, but it had more of a sour smell. And so he researched it all out and he found out that because of the extra body fat, he had mere, more of this, um, I don't know if I'm saying it right, but butyric acid. And so it, when it decomposed, it let out more of a sour smell. We've done other cleanups where people are alcoholics or drug addicts and you know they smell they smell slightly different like you can kind of walk in and know this is kind of a normal death or a normal decomp or a normal living style versus okay this one smells more like drugs or alcohol might have been involved or really unhealthy lifestyle and then you get the other side of it where you know if the person you kind of know that the person was heavy set because it's got I don't know a different kind of a scent to it so it's been it's been interesting and something I never thought that I would really be fascinated with, but it's neat. It's as much as it all kind of smells the same, it kind of smells different. How do people respond to you? Like is the family usually pretty accommodating when they have to call you and you show up to deal with this tragedy? Yes. Um this is a hard one for me because I'm really such a people person and I kind of feel like I feel people's emotions. Mm -hmm. So when we get the call, I can usually tell if it's a family member or a friend mm -hmm. and not always. Sometimes like I talked to a husband a couple of days ago, his wife had shot herself and he was kind of fine. You know, um, I wouldn't say upbeat, but he didn't seem, he used the word suicide. Yeah. My wife committed suicide and usually they'll avoid it. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of took me back, but when we get on scene, they're always very, very accommodating. We try to make them leave without making them leave. Like if they want to be present, fine, but they usually sit in a different room of the house. Sometimes they'll just be out of the house altogether. But, mm -hmm. you know, we just get in and get out as quickly as we can to let them go through the whole grieving process. We've done situations for family where they lived out of state and they needed the house cleaned up so they could show it. And we've helped on that end just out of a courtesy is, you know, go and do open house or meet a realtor to let them see it and 
what all needs to be done. We feel like the majority of our clients kind of look at us as if we are a close family member to them. And we we hope, you know, they feel that way about us because that's how we like to treat our clients. They're going through something horrible right now. And right. They, they don't want to feel like somebody's taking advantage of them or just doesn't care as much about them as a person. You know, it's it's a really tragic time, whatever it, it is. is. I talk to funeral home directors and stuff, and sometimes it just comes off as a business. And that's not what people want to experience when they're at that point. So um, right. it just makes me happy and to hear that you're making that connection with them. Well, thank you. Yeah, we. one of the things I learned in the early days of our research is that at the time, there were a handful of companies, so it wasn't really a big saturated industry. And the few people that made their presence known on the internet were kind of gross. It was really heartbreaking to see. We, there was one cleaner, and he's notorious. I've I've been tagged in a whole bunch of his videos with people just appalled. But he, I mean, he laid on the bed of a girl who killed herself and, you know, called her a bitch. And it was just like, why would you, well, I mean, what? first of all, that's somebody's child. I mean, you don't know her. You don't know anything about her life or what she went through. I just, it was so hard for me to wrap my head around, like, just that. And then, you know, I try to give him the benefit of the doubt and chalk it up to maybe that's how he's coping, is to go more on the angry, fault-finding, blaming side of things so he can get through his job. But after watching and listening to so many things, he he just seems awful. And I don't say that to to be mean or talk poorly about him, but it just, I don't understand how he's made it so far. When we started, I wanted to bring a different element. So that was, it was kind of neat to find him because it was, you might do great work, but I would never treat somebody the, as badly as you're treating people. Exactly. Um, that's the, so he gave that contrast, which was great. Yeah, that's that's what I don't want to see. You know, whether it be right. in any job position or career, I don't want to see somebody that just comes off as a total dirtbag and just a, uncaring. That's right. You know, doesn't even matter if it's podcasting or <laughs> or crime scene cleanup. I just don't like this to see that. Yeah, it's it's awful. I mean, in any in any business, any dealing in life, it's just. You know, I mean, you have that golden rule and I don't know, I just, I, I don't like bully people. I don't like, you know, mean people, heartless people. I just don't get it. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's so easy to be kind to people that, yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. I hate seeing it. And especially in the industry, because these people are in their darkest hour and they need, they really need that, you know, that support and somebody kind of letting them know that it's as much as it's not going to be okay, it will be okay. You know, I had a second follow-up question to the the smell. You refer to it as odor remediation. Yep. How does that work? Because I just assume that the body fluids and everything from a person would just permeate, just get in everything, and there's just there's no way to get rid of it. So it, <laughs> that's very true. It one of the things we discovered is like a rat, um, a rat decomposition, the odor usually only lasts like seven days, which is bizarre. With a human, it doesn't go away unless you get rid of the source. Mm -hmm. And then even then, it permeates the, all the soft goods. So basically, on the cleanup side of it, you need to get rid of the source of the odor. And then 
Um, what we do is we get rid of any and all soft goods, so like carpet, drapery, you know, bedding, stuff like that, even even cloth furniture. And then in, in very rare cases, if the walls were like a flat paint or popcorn ceilings, another one that holds odor, most of the time you can get away without painting. But if it is a flat paint or something like that, or it's kind of the gloss is worn off, then it usually needs to be refinished with a primer and then a good couple coats of paint. But you can get rid of it. It is one of the more tricky things to do. It's almost like chasing a ghost because once we're done with the cleanup process of it and we get rid of all the soft goods, if there is still odor, it's we either miss something or it's we either miss something or the walls need to be redone. Mm-hmm. I've lived in places where people smoke cigarettes and I feel I'm very sensitive to tobacco. I'm, I guess I'm just allergic to that. And I, I will go into my mother's house and clean up all our ashtrays, vacuum the floors, do whatever. And I can still smell that somebody has smoked in that house, no matter what. Right. It just never goes away. And I just, that's my only frame of reference is, you know, because I've never smelled a crime scene really. I couldn't imagine how much effort that takes to get rid of the odor. Right. And does it matter it, how fresh or how long it's been there? Um, so the fresher, like, it sounds terrible talking like this, but the the fresher the crime scene is, the less decomposition. So the metallic scent doesn't necessarily permeate anything. It's more of the decomp odor that does. So usually on a on a fresh suicide, it's whatever little odor is there leaves with us without as much effort as on a decomp. Have you had to do like a multiple homicide scene ever? We did a, I'm trying to remember which ones we've done, but we did a, um, a homicide suicide. And basically a lady was a mom of seven. We did an episode on it, actually. She was a mom of seven and her boyfriend was drinking and, and they wound up getting in a big fight. And he shot her in front of all of her kids. And one of the older, the oldest kid's boyfriend was there, ended up tackling him and they like they tussled about and then they went rolling down the, it was in an apartment complex. They went down the stairs and at the bottom of the stairs, the man shot himself. Mm. So we did that. I think that was, I would have to go back through. We've done so many different cleanups. It's sometimes you end up mixing up details of this one and that one, but um, that's the one that comes to mind quickly without chewing up your time. No, you're fine. (laughs) Chew up (laughs) up my time. You're fine. (laughs) When it comes to whether it be a homicide or a suicide, I guess it's probably more conditional on what kind of weapon was used as opposed to the means or the method, right? I guess, uh, I guess guns would probably be a lot messier. Yes. We've done a couple of beatings and those are pretty gnarly in terms of, because you have the cast off from the, from the club or whatever is being used to beat the person to death. Guns usually, depending on the caliber, like we did, we did a small caliber, I think it was a 22 or something. Um, I don't know my guns so well, but it was a small caliber and there definitely was an exit wound, but all of the blood was kind of contained in a big puddle. Mm -hmm. And then we've done larger calibers or shotguns or rifle suicides. And that, 
kind of goes everywhere. So you have the big puddle where the body is, but then you have blood everywhere. And when I say everywhere, it doesn't, it's not like somebody painted the walls with blood, but there is speckles and spatter and it gets everywhere. So I think the higher caliber guns kind of resemble in a sense, the beatings, but with the guns, it's assuming they hit their head. Usually you'll find skull fragments or teeth or, you know, chunks of brain, things like that. And just anywhere and everywhere, because it's, it's an explosion, really, and yeah. it just shoots it everywhere. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, with gunshots, you have to look. Um, you, you never know what was open before you got there and what, you know, corner um, EMTs closed. So we found, we found things in, like, other parts of the house that kind of ricocheted off or things in drawers that were closed that we would have missed if we didn't if we didn't look. So that was part of the training is the training and the learning and experiences. You know, you basically have to, you have to grid the entire everywhere because you, I mean, the last thing you want to do is miss something, Yeah, you know, and it's not always obvious. Yeah. You're trying to give the survivors a clean slate, You're trying right. to remove any of this tragedy right there. And, and if uh, there was a drawer open and, and somebody closed the drawer because it was in the way and you clean this whole place up and then the mother or the whoever comes and opens the drawer and it's full of blood, it's, it's, I'm sure it's not going to be great for them to see that. And I can't believe that families would clean up their own scenes that way. Um, right. That's the worst part for me is we've gone in after family have tried and failed and they seem to be even more traumatized than, than the initial loss. Like, I mean, of course, initial loss is the worst thing, but then that's their last memory of their loved one. I mean, that would, that's the hardest part for me is when we get calls like, Hey, you know, we have a crime scene or we, we had a suicide or death in the family. We've tried to clean it up, but we just can't do it. It's, my heart breaks so bad for those guys. You know, I always wish they had found us just a little bit sooner, even if it's not us, just somebody yeah. so that they didn't have to, they didn't have to do that. And we've had friends, friends of the family attempt to clean it up to try to spare the family member from having to do it, which is great. But then those people find themselves seeing something they can't unsee. And, you know, I guess adrenaline or whatever it was you know, made them dive in there and start doing it. And once all of that wears off, they're, they're kind of traumatized, you know? Yeah. It's one of those, it's kind of crappy. Yeah. I mean, I, I was disconnected from my friend's scene with the boyfriend and the father. And I, so I didn't have any connection there, but if it was a family member or a friend, I would have to process that this was them. Right. And no, I, I couldn't do that. Yeah, it brings that whole element of personal connection to it, whereas when you don't know the person, you're able to kind of distance yourself. Unfortunately, I, I tend to dive into people's lives and I look at the pictures on the walls and, you know, if I've searched people that we've cleaned up on Facebook to see who their friends were and what they're going through. So I probably shouldn't do any of that, um, but I'm just a super curious person. You know, like, how did this come to be? Mm -hmm. And so, but yeah, I, I don't think I could do, depending on 
the actual circumstances of a family member or friend passing for me, I don't think that I could clean up somebody that closely related to me. Is it usually pretty obvious what the cause of death or whatever it was? I mean, is it is it typically like, oh, this was a murder or this was a suicide or this was somebody that died of natural causes? It's one of those things that I it, I want to say yes, but at the same time, we usually have the information going in. So maybe we're just already geared to thinking like, okay, this was a suicide or that was a homicide. So I want to say yes. Usually with sick people, they end up throwing up or defecating. So that we kind of know that they that they died of natural causes or they'll usually be by their bed and a lot of a lot of suicides are also in their bedroom but it's different than like a decomp because usually decomp it all just becomes a mess wherever the body lay whereas with suicides even if they decompose you have the decomposition plus the blood spatter so you can kind of tell from that In terms of homicide, I don't know that we would be able to tell those apart from a suicide unless there was like a break-in or the place was ransacked or there was some other indicator. But yeah, I mean, again, I I can't answer that 100% for sure because we're usually tipped off before we get there what happened. Is there any job that you would have to turn down either because you wouldn't want to do it or couldn't do it? Um, nope. I, we, we've done every time I think, oh, I don't think we could pull something like that off, like some industrial something, we end up getting a call for it. And I don't know, we don't, we don't scare easily and we're trying to, trying to grow and learn. And so I'd say no to that. We've done, we did a guy fell through us. We've done a few industrial, um, but we did a guy fell through a skylight on a construction site. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, one of the more involved jobs, we had OSHA on scene with us, which was a little terrifying <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're hoping everything is totally 100% right. And I honestly don't think there's a job we couldn't do. We have equipment and tools and experience and everything. I think a, a huge job like like a school shooting or something would just basically be equivalent to a whole bunch of smaller cleanups. So we'd basically just work our way through it like we would any other crime scene. We've done some really gnarly cleanups in terms of the death side of things, but also we do a lot of hoarding cleanup. Mm -hmm. So we've seen like the ultimate filth you could possibly imagine. So I don't think, I don't think we'd be put off by anything if I'm being honest. What are the, longer jobs for you? Is it when somebody's been dead for longer and no one knew they were there? Is it obviously the hoarding jobs, those are going to be time consuming because if you're having to clear areas just to clean the area, but is, is it, does it take days? Does it take hours? We separate our jobs by blood and hoarding. So for our blood jobs, they're usually, usually hours. I would say in the hours, unless we're emptying the house for the family, then then it could possibly go to days. Hoarding jobs are anywhere from a day to a week. And then the longer, more involved blood jobs, 
are usually in cars because you have to dismantle the car. So basically you're following a blood trail and usually on upon first inspection, you don't see everything. Like Ethan just did one, I think it was yesterday or the day before, a lady um, killed herself in her car. And when he looked at it, it was, it was pretty simple. And then when he dove into actually cleaning it, there was a hole in one of the cup holders, which leaked. And so it wound up going down the middle of the center console and then under the passenger seat. So we had what turned out, what was, he estimated as a one hour cleanup ended up being like a five hour cleanup. And he had to take out the seat and rip out the carpet and take out the center console. So it became an incredibly involved process. Because the car wasn't a brand new car, we try to salvage as much as we can without just disposing of it. So if it if it can be cleaned, we try to clean it. If we can't, we obviously have to get rid of it. I mean, we, we certify all of our jobs, so we give certificates. And I won't give out a certificate if we can't make sure. Like, I don't need that liability. So yeah. if I can't actually clean it the right way, then we actually get rid of it. Well, you've said two things that, I didn't know. I mean, one was the the guy that ran down the stairs was fighting and then the, you know, the suicide or uh, struggle for the gun happened outside of the apartment and then cars and vehicles. Not something right. I ever considered that you would have to deal with, but of course you would because death and tragedy doesn't just happen in the comfort of our own homes. So Right. Yeah, it's, it's strange. Um, a lot of times people will do it in um, storage units. They'll do it in vehicles or they'll go to hotels. And it's probably because they don't want to burden their own family with it. And it's unfortunate because they're still burdening somebody. And I hate to say that because I yeah. I don't judge. I I have no place to judge suicide at all, you know, so... I don't say that to make anybody contemplating it feel guilty. I just would hope that they got help. Mm -hmm. But just to kind of give a different perspective of people trying to prevent their family from happening, happening upon it, it's still somebody's going to happen upon it. You know, and just because they're not family doesn't mean it's not traumatic for the person to find the body. And it, it's odd that when you're at a state of mind where something extreme might happen, that there still is this logic, this consciousness of, I don't want to burden somebody. Right. You know, it's... Yeah, it's horrible. You think if they, if they can think that part of it, then just... Obviously, you have feelings for whoever you're about to leave behind. Mm -hmm. Just go get help, you know? And it's, I'm sure it's not always that easy. Yeah. Again, I, I try... We try super hard not to judge any situation because I've never traveled in these people's lives or... I don't know what they're up against and ultimately not my, it's not my place. So, yeah. but yeah, it, it's, you're right about there being a bit of logic there to think through, you know, and just, it's just unfortunate. They don't think a little bit further past that one point and it's like, okay, wait, if I don't want them to find me, well, I obviously, there's strong feelings there. So, and you know, you don't have to give specific numbers, but is there an average cost that one should expect if they have to call you? That one's tough, and it it's mainly because of the there's so many varying factors to it. Mm -hmm. But 
we've done jobs as small as $500 and we've done jobs as large as $20,000. I will say the $20,000 job, we did it properly and we did it well and, but it was in our early days. So it was still kind of a learning process and we were trying to do, we were trying not to demolish too much of the guy's house Mm -hmm. um, to help save money on the whole cleanup. But it, it ended up like we had to keep going back because we we were not handling the odor. It was a decomp. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, insurance covered it, so he didn't have out-of-pocket expense. We've done, like I said, we've done jobs as small as 500 all the way up to 20000 And it's, I think, usually ballpark would be, I guess the most average would be somewhere between 1200 and 2500 if I had to just give... A number. Yeah, and I know it's completely ambiguous. Of you know, it's what what are we cleaning up? How much right. of a of a mess it, it, are we having to uh, engage here? So I, I know that was a sort of a softball, like <laughs> you know, not really <laughs> a great answer for it. But <laughs> my only my only reluctancy in even mentioning price is I would hate to say, well, between twelve and twenty five hundred, and then somebody have like somebody listen to the episode and then have a death in the family and then be told that it's $5,000 mm-hmm. and it'd be a legitimate, like a legitimate $5,000, yeah. but they get their expectations at 12 to 25 mm-hmm. and then they're told 5,000. It's like, Whoa, you're ripping me off. And that company may not be ripping them off. Yeah. And that's the, that's the whole thing. Like I, I had to have a, a toilet installed and somebody's like, Oh, a toilet installation is 150 bucks. No problem. But then they get in there. They realize that my drain system isn't set up properly. They have to go buy a, a, like a weird sleeve to get it to meet up with the toilet and turned into a whole day job. And that $150, you know, price tag was <laughs> right out the window because <laughs> I had right? to redo all the plumbing <laughs> to make it work. So it's, yeah, and that's the worst. If you expect a low price and then you get a high price, you're like, dude, what did you just do? Like, did you take your time? Mm-hmm. You know, why weren't you hurrying? <laughs> I don't know. I get frustrated when I get a low price and then they come in double or triple what they originally told me. But Well, and that's the learning process for you is you would rather o- over-deliver and under-promise because you're wanting them to be happy when you're you're done. Right. Yes, and that's a very true statement. That's, I think that's our biggest thing is you want your client as happy as they can be under the circumstances. And we try to make sure that's, that's one of the reasons we don't change our price. When we give a quote after we see a job, we'll stick to it, even if we underbid it. Like the car Ethan just did, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was estimated that an hour it took them five hours. And extra, I mean, there was a bunch of extra stuff that was not originally bid for, but that's unfortunately, you know, it's just a, one of those unfortunate things. Yeah, It's not, it's not our client's fault. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll just eat it <laughs> to make sure that, you know, we, we delivered what we promised. We delivered it for the price we told you. And my client doesn't need to be bothered with the fact that, you know, we did, we made no dollars off of the job if that's the case. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I used to fix computers on the side and, and I used to tell people like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to back up your data and reinstall windows and hand it back to you. I'll do it for 200 bucks. And then in the middle of backing up their data, 
their hard drive crashes. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, I, I can't charge them more than 200 because that's what I bid. You know, that's what right. I told them. I can't come back and say, uh, you know, and luckily with computers, not much can go wrong besides, you know, data loss. Uh, unlike a car or construction or anything else where as soon as you get that wall off, you know, that drywall off the wall, you're like, oh, and you got a whole other can of worms you got to deal with. <laughs> and I get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> do your children know what your job is? They do. So we have a just turned 10 year old, almost eight year old, a three year old and a one year old. So the little guys don't really know. Mm -hmm. The older guys, the older guys do know. So mm -hmm. they, we've had to tell them mainly because you know, it's like we'll be in the middle of doing family movie night or whatever we're doing, playing games or whatever, and we'll get a call and it's like, okay, guys, we got to go. And this was more back in the earlier days when both Ethan and I were always at jobs or Ethan had a full-time job and I was at jobs, but it's not as awful as it, like we, Ethan does a lot of the work now and I'm only there, excuse me, I'm usually only on job sites if a client specially requests me and it's usually a woman and it's usually a hoarding situation. So, but yeah, we, we had to tell them because obviously we don't want them upset that we're bailing on family movie night or whatever it may be. So we just let them know that we help people and, you know, sometimes bad things happen and it's more than the family can take care of. So we go and they've understood that. And as they've grown, they, they understand we clean up after after death and they've asked to see pictures and I'll usually find a little like nothing too graphic or traumatizing, but they're they're also very curious kids, so mm. Well yeah, and I, I just I always think when did my parents have the the death talk with me and I think, well, I don't you know, unless the goldfish died or or right. you know <laughs> the the guinea pig or the rabbit in the backyard that the talk never happened so you're having to force this talk and to explain what you have to do for a living right unfortunately they've been okay like they're they're both pretty the older the older two are they're pretty level-headed rational smart kids so honestly i think they would have figured it out if i had never told them but but yeah they're they they don't seem to be bothered by it yeah well, that's good. I mean, I just yeah. was curious because you said you had four kids and I was like, wow, <laughs> how did that go over? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think the three-year-old might, it might be a bit different for that one. He, my, so my first, we have boy, girl, boy, girl. So my, my oldest daughter wound up getting a bloody nose. She hurt herself and it was gushing. Like it, it was gushing out of her face to the point they had, they had their own cleanup crew where we were. And, um, my, he was two at the time. He looked at his sister and he fainted, which yeah, he does. He'll see the smallest speck of blood on his body and he freaks out. And I'm assuming that's a most kid, like it's mostly what kids do. But I was, I laughed at the fact that like, how are you two years old? You see a little bit of like a lot of blood, but you've actually faint. I've only seen that happen with grown men on shows in delivery rooms, you know, but it was as, as not funny as it was, it was kind of funny. Yeah. Like, wow, my two-year-old fainted at the sight of blood. I guess we're not 
handing a business over to that one. Yeah. Well, and and I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't even think that a two-year-old would understand what, right? you know, the blood <laughs> situation. But, hey, you know, they do. <laughs> I mean, and that's what made me laugh about it. It's like, yeah, he processed that. It was, yeah, yeah it, again, it wasn't funny, but it was. I, I did laugh because it was like, yeah. holy smokes, he... He really just understood so much of what happened that he fainted. Mm-hmm. You know, not what I need when you got your kid gushing blood. Now I'm dealing with two of them. <laughs> and something that uh, that I gathered from listening to your podcast, The Cleaning of John Doe, was you don't just, your day-to-day isn't just cleaning up after a crime scene. You have to manage a work crew. You have to... Uh, deal with OSHA and all these other things. And there's so much more to it than that. And when I first started listening, I just expected the the gory details of a cleanup. And right. I didn't get that. And I was happy to not just get that. I was so happy that it was so much more. Uh, Yay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, my, my, you know, my uh, gory, and you know curiosity into that was was still you know i still got w- what i wanted to hear out of it because i'm just intrigued by the whole process but the whole other element of having to manage having to do this you know you're getting multiple calls at the same time somebody on your crew is screwing up <laughs> whatever it is uh i'll let people listen to your episode i don't want to give too many spoilers away because i want people to go listen <laughs> yeah it's it's had its challenges i mean obviously we do the best we can we one of the things we heavily advertise on our site is we are a family-owned business so there have been times where people have called and there are screaming kids in the background i do my best to run away and hide but I mean, it's life, it's real life, and, um, you know, you have the juggle and struggle of finding reputable or, you know, um, not reputable, but finding good workers and, you know, honest workers who aren't going to steal from your job sites, and then trying to juggle kids and getting a babysitter out there at the drop of a hat and, you know, making the babysitter stay until the wee hours of the morning because the cleanup didn't go as quickly as you thought or you know, calling dumpster companies and having dumpsters delivered and swapped out on time so you're you're not screwing up your client's schedule and going over on your own schedule or, you know, it, it's been incredibly challenging and we've learned so much along the way. And I have become pretty efficient in time management, people management, children management. I mean, it's just like, I don't, I'm one of those people and it drives Ethan bananas because I, I don't stop. Like, he's like, Hey, let's watch a movie. And it's like, okay, let's watch a movie. And then five minutes in, I'm like, wait, pause it. What happened? And he's like, where did you go? Like I was in my head thinking of the dumpster tomorrow or, you know, this or that. But since he's mostly dealing with the field stuff, it allows me to handle all the craziness, you know, of the, like the scheduling and the dumpsters and the billing and the kids and all of that stuff. And he, he kind of just takes on now the problems on the job sites or the issues with the crews or, so we kind of break it up. We found our balance after so many years of doing this. Well, you're project coordinator, essentially. Uh, right. th- there's so many aspects to it and timing a dumpster, timing these things out to, because you, 
have to bid the job. You have to say, I estimate this amount, this time, and all these things. And you have to make that all flow. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't imagine. Like that seems more stressful to me than the actual cleaning of blood. (laughs) Right. And it is. It's... Yeah, it'll make you go crazy sometimes, you know? It's like, oh, I just, I need a break from all of this. But mm-hmm. I don't know, as soon as you take a break, you end up getting swallowed by it. And do you do you travel far for jobs? Like, do you just do your state or have you traveled across country? So fortunately, not cross country. We do pretty much all of Southern California, but we've had we've had days where Ethan is in San Diego doing a job and then gets a phone call for another job where he has to drive to Fresno. And that is like such a horribly long drive. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, if it's not a hoarding job, it it usually can't wait. So it was literally finish up in San Diego, load up and rush out to Fresno, which is, I don't know, probably five or six hours. I guess with With, LA traffic and distance. I was going to say without traffic, that sounds about right. (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, fortunately, we've only had a handful of those situations, but we've had other days where we'll be at one job site and then surprisingly enough, somebody else wants an estimate that's, you know, 10 minutes away and then another guy needs a cleanup or we'll have jobs right around the corner from each other. It's just strange how the universe kind of puts all that together for us. But like I said, we've had a couple where he's he's gone from one side of Southern California to the other side of You know, obviously there's there's a a process to get licensed or whatever, but could you practice in Nevada or Arizona, one of the neighbor neighboring states? I love that you asked that because we actually I actually advertise that we do Las Vegas mm-hmm. um, or Nevada I should say and we have looked into Arizona. The interesting thing in in that is the neighboring areas to us have different regulations in California. A couple of years ago when I was doing research on Nevada, they had no regulations on, like you could just throw a bloody mattress in the trash. And I don't know if that has since changed, but yeah, I was kind of shocked it made me it really made me want to reach out to the health department and kind of help them put some sort of guideline or regulation to you know to prevent that from happening but there's not enough hours in the day to really mm-hmm. to really help them fix that you know so well i mean you're running a podcast and doing your job that <laughs> that alone <Right. laughs> um, yeah the podcast holy smokes that's a lot of work i i really admire people who I'm not in, I I don't, I don't have as much involved in the podcast as most podcasters do. And so, but for me, it's still, it's like, oh, it's almost a full-time job in and of itself. And I'm not doing interviews and I'm not doing editing and I'm not doing writing. I just talk into a microphone and do the social media stuff. So, but yeah, I, I really admire, really admire those people who are like in it to win it because it's, it's a lot of work. It is. It is a lot of work. <laughs> I don't think people understand sometimes. So uh, just something you, you hit on, uh, you could take a bloody mattress and throw it in a dumpster. So there's, in California, you have a whole, uh, I guess, biohazard kind of kit uh, process that you have to go through. 
Is it just you have to have plastic bags and then dispose of this biohazard uh, at a certain place or? Yeah, there's um, you need you need proper biohazard bags and then puncture proof containers for it. And then there are treatment facilities that we have one that comes out to pick up when we need it. Yeah, they're the same people who go around to hospitals and uh, medical and dental facilities and pick up their biohazard waste. But yeah, in California, if you put if you put biohazard waste in the trash, it's it's a humongous fine. Wow! And you most certainly do not want to get caught doing that. So it's I guess that's why it's shocking to me. We had this is kind of off topic here, but we had bid a job for the county coroner and it was a hoarding job, but there was bio there. And the company who did the bio cleanup left all the bio in the house. And then we didn't end up securing the job. They hired the original company who did the biohazard. Those guys then took a year later, took the bag of trash, the bag of bio and threw it in our local dump. And somebody was, I think somebody was, I think it contained a mattress, if I'm not mistaken, and somebody identified it as blood. They shut the whole dump down, and then we got called because we were the local company. We lived in a small mountain community, and so we were the local company. Everybody knew us up there, and we were called and asked if we disposed of it in the dumps, and it was like, nope, it was not us. So it wound up, they had the health department, they had like other agencies come. It was a huge deal to have that biohazard stuff put in in the dump. So when I found out about Vegas or Nevada, it was shocking to me that people can just, yep, just right in the garbage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> I would just assume that that was a thing. But again, I'm naive and, and most of the public is totally naive to this process and and that's why I was fascinated by your show <laughs> because yeah. you you don't get to hear about this stuff on a normal daily basis even true crime fans don't really right. know they just learn about the the plot and the thing leading up to the event but we never talk about what happens afterwards right and that was one of the reasons we wanted to start the podcast wasn't I mean, obviously, you need to bring some element of entertainment because the thing we wanted to do was enlighten people as to the industry as a whole. Um, so they weren't, they at least knew about it. So they were, they would never find themselves stuck in a position they were cleaning up a loved one. And so obviously, you don't get a big message like that out in a one, one episode thing. So we, we tried to bring the entertainment side of it, the, you know, the personal feel and also the respect aspect so that people knew the industry existed. They kind of knew what to look for, what was acceptable and what wasn't. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, we're, we're kind of pleased with the response from the whole, I mean, I've met some amazing people, podcasters and listeners, and it's been a really, really, really incredible experience for me. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it, I, I say it often on my social media, but it's it filled a void in, that I never knew needed to be filled. There's there's a tight knit podcast community out there. It's definitely a, a community of people and trying to help each other out. So 
Yeah, and I love it because in our in my industry, it's not. It's a cutthroat. I want this job, and I'm going to do whatever shady tactics I need to get. You know, and it's just I don't play that way personally. I think I think the pie is big enough for everybody, and we can all help each other. But unfortunately, the, my local competitors do not feel that way. I'm just competition, and that's it's a dog eat dog world, and that's how that's how they do it. And you know, that's cool. I I, I can kind of respect that. But the podcasting thing, I've seen so few people being competitive out there. It's kind of like, oh, let me help your show, or let me do this to help you, and I. I absolutely just love that side of it. So I try to pour into, you know, like helping to set that example and, you know, just thrive on helping other people. And it's been, yeah, it's been really awesome. The the world's big enough that there's always room for another podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so true. Um, well, cool. I'm, I might, do, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Uh, as far as your job and and things that you do uh, that you want people to know about? I don't think so. I think the main, you know, the main thing is, is like my podcast is not set up at all to be an advertisement for our company, but I've, I actually had a listener reach out to me and tell me that they had a family member whose friend had a death in the family and she was asking for tips and advice and whatnot. And so I'd love to extend that, you know, I was happy to help her and give her as much information as she needed. And I'm happy to do that for anybody in any situation um, where cleanups involved, even if they're not local to me, if they're not in my service area, just, you know, any advice I can give or help to make sure that they get well taken care of. I'm more than happy to do obviously at no cost, and then if they are in my service area, they need our services, I'm happy to help that way. But I'm also happy to refer other reputable companies if they want to, you know, get quotes or have second opinions or stuff like that. So um, I think that's the main thing is just the industry exists. There are really awesome people in the industry. There are some other not so awesome people in the industry. And you have choices, even though it may not feel like it, just you know, do your research and work with a company you're comfortable with. Oh, I like so. that. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. And I'm the same way. If anyone needs podcasting questions answered, I'm, I'm a wealth of knowledge. I don't know if I give the best advice, but <laughs> I try. <laughs> At least you're willing to give advice. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I want to thank both of my guests so much for sharing their stories. I have more interviews that I am currently editing and trying to get out as fast as possible. I've tried to schedule a couple of interviews with folks that have fallen through or been delayed, but I might stop interviewing for now and just get my content out that I already have that everyone's been waiting on. A few thank yous. First goes to Allison, who helped me out with questions for the filmmakers of Evil Genius. All of my new patrons on Patreon. Uh, I know I haven't even been charging my patrons lately, but I'm going to turn Patreon back on. Uh, this is going to help assist me with 
paying for editors and hopefully work faster. Thank you for all the love from The Vanished, podcasts we listen to, Twisted Philly, True Crime Fan Club, This Is Adulting, True Crime Garage, and Mike from Pleasing Terrors, especially Aaron, my wonderful co-host from Gen Y, and anyone that's reached out to me lately. It's really helpful and gives me much motivation and inspires me to do more. I'll talk to you all soon.